0: Hi, welcome to Pitt Town Church. We are so glad that you're listening to this podcast. We pray that this sermon encourages you in your walk with Jesus. If you would like more information, check out our website at www.pittownchurch.com.
1: Hi, this reading is from Numbers chapter 20, verses 1 to 13. In the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of Zin, and they stayed at Kadesh. There Miriam died and was buried. Now there was no water for the community, and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They quarreled with Moses and said, If only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this wilderness that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance to the tent of meeting and fell face down, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord said to Moses, Take the staff, and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes, and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so that they and their livestock can drink. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gave the assembly together, uh, gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust me, trust in me enough to honour me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the Israelites quarrelled with the Lord, and where he was proved holy among them.
0: This morning it's my privilege and joy to read the Bible with you, and so I encourage you to open your Bibles to the second reading that comes from John chapter 4. When Jesus knew that the Pharisees heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went again to Galilee. He had to travel through Samaria, so he went to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about six in the evening. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, for his disciples had gone into town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, she asked him. Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Sir," said the woman. You don't even have a bucket and the well is deep. So where do you get this living water? You aren't greater than our Father Jacob are you? He gave us, gave us the well and drank it from sorry, He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Jesus said, "Everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. but whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again, ever." In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up within him for eternal life. So the woman said to him, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. Go, call your husband, he told her, and come back here. I I don't have a husband, she answered. You have correctly said, I don't have a husband, Jesus said. For you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. Yet you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Jesus told her, Believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming. And is now here, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ, when he comes, he will explain everything to us. I am he, Jesus told her, the one speaking to you.
2: Well, hello, everyone. My name's Tim Edwards. I'm the student minister here at Pitt Town. And today we're going to be thinking about the question what does the Bible have to say about hard times? Perhaps there have been hard times in your life, maybe even right now living in a lockdown during a global pandemic, when things have just felt really hard. And during those hard times, we can be tempted to think, where is God? What is he doing? Hard times can leave us feeling like maybe God isn't powerful enough to stop this. Maybe he just doesn't care about me. Where is God? what is he doing? We're going to be thinking about some of those questions and seeing what the Bible has to say. And before we do that, I'm going to pray that God would speak to us through his word and help us understand how He is providing for us in these hard times. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word, the Bible, that it's alive and active. I pray that as we study it, We would learn more about you and you would help us to see all the ways that you provide for us. Well, as I said, today we're going to be thinking about that question. What does the Bible have to say about hard times? And to help us understand the answer to the question, we're going to be looking at a passage in the Bible that is Numbers chapter 20. Uh, Numbers 20 is like a mini episode or, or a snapshot of Israel's experience in the wilderness, And there are lots of things that are going on in this story, so many things. Uh, But we're going to be focusing specifically on the way that God provides for his people. And we're going to be looking at and thinking about the characteristics of this provision. And hopefully together that we will see that God's provision, that it is present, that it is personal, and also it is purposeful. Today, we're going to be looking at God's provision. We're going to see that it is present, that it's personal, and importantly, it is purposeful. If you've got your Bibles there with you, uh, open them back up to Numbers chapter 20 or an electronic device, switch it on and and look up that passage. Uh, But uh, to give us a little bit of background or context to what's going on, uh, I thought I'd explain uh, what's been happening before this. If you joined us last term, you might have been here for our study in Genesis where we learnt about God and creation and we saw that even though God created the world, humanity rejected Him and fell into a downward spiral of sin. But despite their rejection of Him, God called to Himself Abraham and gave him a series of promises that He would be the father of many sons, a great nation, uh, that He would have a land and that He would live under God's blessing. Abraham gave birth to Isaac. Isaac gave birth to Jacob. Jacob then gave birth to Joseph. Uh, And Joseph, well, his brothers weren't very nice and they sold him into slavery and he went off into Egypt as a slave. Uh, But then his brothers, they kind of encountered some famine in the land. And so they were forced to also leave God's promised land, the land he'd given Abraham. And they went down into Egypt to be with their brother. Uh, Now, things started off all right, things were going pretty well actually, but then after a period of 400 years, Israel ended up as slaves in Egypt and they called out to God and cried out to Him and He heard their cry and through a series of amazing and miraculous miracles, God freed His people from slavery out of Egypt and took them on a journey back to the promised land that He had given to Abraham all those hundreds of years earlier. And so we see Israel on a journey out of Egypt and back to the promised land. And today's story takes place in the middle of that journey. They've left Egypt and they're on their way to the land that God had promised them. In fact, we actually know that a little bit earlier on in Numbers, in Numbers 13, Israel had actually already entered the promised land one time. But when they got there, they decided they didn't like it. They were afraid. They didn't trust in God's promise to give them that land, and they left. And so God takes them through the wilderness on a roundabout journey to re-enter the promised land from a different direction. But today's story takes place in that wilderness during that wandering. Now, if you're the kind of person that likes to take notes in your Bible or you're wondering about the structure of this passage Uh, it's divided into six sections we have an introduction and a conclusion the introduction sets the scene for us and the conclusion kind of wraps everything up for us and sandwiched in the middle are a series of four speeches you see first the people speak and then God speaks then Moses speaks and then God has the final word and speaks again And so we've got our introduction, conclusion, and a series of four speeches. And we're going to work through the passage in that order. So the first thing we see is verse 1, which, as I said, is the introduction. It's kind of like setting the scene for us, like the opening scene of a movie. Or if you're into musicals, it's kind of like that first overture that tells you a little bit, gives you a feel of what's going to happen in the story. Verse 1 gives us the undertones, the undercurrent to the story. And the first thing we learn is that Israel are in the wilderness of Zin. Now, uh, I have never been to the wilderness of Zin before, but I looked it up and it's situated in sort of modern Israel, in the south of modern Israel on the border of Egypt and Jordan. It's in the middle of nowhere. Uh, And as I've never been there before and lockdown restrictions have limited my travel, I thought I'd do the next best thing to try and get a sense and a feeling of where Israel were in the middle of the wilderness, and I'd look on Google Maps. So hopefully here is a picture of what I saw. This is the wilderness of Zin. This is what the desert is like. It is completely dry, harsh, and barren. I don't know how you usually choose your camping locations or where you go hiking, Um, But this is not high on my list of priorities. I'm not a very good camper, and I would certainly not be going there. This is a completely dry, desolate desert. The other thing we learn about setting the scene is that Israel are in a place called Kadesh. Now, if you plot Kadesh on a map, it actually reveals that on Israel's journey, they are currently on their way away from the promised land. Remember I said in, earlier on in Numbers 13 that they had entered the promised land that God had given to them, but they decided that they didn't like it and that they had not trusted God's promise and left. And so now they're under God's judgment leaving the promised land. They're in the middle of a wilderness in the desert, moving away from the promises of God. It's pretty clear to see things are not going well. And that's just verse one. Let's have a look at at verse three. How do the people respond to this hard time, to being in the middle of a desert uh, and wandering away from the promised land? We find out that the people were quarreling with Moses. Verse three says, if only we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord, why have you brought the Lord's assembly into this wilderness for us and our livestock to die here? Why have you led us up from Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is not a place of grain, figs, vines and pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. For Israel, things were going really wrong. They were in the middle of a really hard time. In fact, their complaint tells us that they would rather be back as slaves in Egypt than be here in the desert with no water. You don't have to be bare grills to know that being in the desert and having no water is a really bad situation to be in. It's kind of essential for surviving in a desert. You need water. Israel were in a desperate situation. And the response teaches us that they were ready to reject God. They wanted to go back to slavery in Egypt. At least there they had fruit and nice things. They were looking for something else or someone else to be in control. They were not trusting God. God during this hard time. Everything was going wrong. Let's see what happens next in verse 6. Well, in verse 6, Moses and Aaron, they went from the presence of the assembly to the doorway of the tent of meeting. They fell down and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. You see, throughout Israel's journey through the wilderness, they've been carrying with them this thing called the tabernacle, which was like a, a giant Tent in which God used to dwell among his people. There was a symbol of his presence with them. And here in this story, we see that despite Israel rejecting God, complaining against him, wanting to go back and be slaves in Egypt, despite them rejecting the promised land, God had not abandoned them. God was still there right among them. It's almost Striking, isn't it, how close he is? Do you notice that Aaron and Moses, they didn't have to go on some long journey away from the people on a spiritual awakening to go and search for the God that had abandoned them. It wasn't as if God was hiding. God was right there, present among them. The first thing that this passage teaches us about the way God provides for his people is it teaches us God is always present. He is right there in the middle of hard times. And we know this as Christians, we actually have great assurance of this because of what the New Testament says. In 1 Corinthians six nineteen, it says, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. You see, that verse in Corinthians isn't about going to the gym and, you know, getting really buff and having a physical you know, bodily temple that's really fit and healthy. No, it's a reference back to this tabernacle. It's about uh, this place that God used to dwell among his people in the desert uh, and in Israel that is now in our hearts by faith. For those that believe in Jesus Christ, God's spirit is now in us. God's presence is in our hearts always. Isn't that an amazing encouragement? We don't have to go searching for God as if he's left us. We don't need to go and look for him like he's hiding. But God promises he is present by his spirit, tabernacling in our hearts. He is there within us always. In the midst of hard times, through his spirit, God is always present. So what happens next? Let's look at verse 7. In verse 7, God speaks and he says to Moses, take the staff and assemble the community. You and your brother Aaron are to speak to the rock while they watch and it will yield its water. You will bring out water from the rock and provide drink for the community and their livestock. You see, not only is God present with them in the wilderness, but this verse, God's response teaches us that he is personal, that he cares about them, that he's listening to their cries and he's going to provide for them. You see, God has heard their complaints and he speaks to the people through Moses. God is not silent. God is not uncaring. This passage and God's response teaches us that he is a personal God. And again, for us who are in Christ Jesus, we know about how personal this relationship is. John 1:12 teaches us that for all who receive Jesus, we have been given the right to become children of God. Have you ever thought about how close and intimate that relationship is? God is not far. He's not distant. He's not abandoned us. He's not some estranged relationship. God is deeply personal. God cares for us like his children. We're reminded that in the middle of hard times, God is present through his spirit. He is with us always. We're also reminded that he is personal. He loves us like his own children. God is present and God is personal. Let's see what happens next, because so far we've seen the people speak, we've heard God speak, and next we're going to get experience of hearing what Moses has to say. So let's see, uh, Numbers 20, verse 10. Uh, Unfortunately, things don't go well here, and we hear Moses try and take things into his own hands. He says, listen, you rebels, must we bring water out of this rock for you? Then Moses raised his hand and struck the rock twice with his staff. So that abundant water gushed out and the community and their livestock drank. Did you notice there the difference between what God said to do and what Moses did? Do you notice that God said, Speak to the rock? And what does Moses do? He goes and hits it twice for good measure, maybe just to make sure it's going to work. God says, Speak, and Moses hits it with a stick. What's going on there? Well, well, this is uh, possibly because earlier on, this is not the first time that Israel have been in the wilderness without any water. This is not the first time God has provided for them. In Exodus chapter 17, we hear the story of Israel being in the wilderness and God telling Moses to hit a rock with a stick and water will come out. And it's as if in this passage, when it's happening again, we see Moses by his actions, by ignoring God and deciding to hit the rock instead, it's showing this attitude of going, don't worry, God. I've got it under control. I'm Moses. I know what I'm doing. I've done this before. I'll get us out of this situation. Moses' actions reveal to us that in the middle of hard times, he chooses to rely on himself. He trusts in what he knows. He trusts in what he's done before. Moses tries to take things into his own hands. And you see, we learn in verse 12, because you did not trust me to demonstrate my holiness in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. Moses' actions were a sign of not trusting God. That's what we're told. And we're told that not trusting God actually has consequences. Moses' rejection and deciding to go his own way and not God's way comes with consequences. This passage is a reminder, it's a warning for us that there are consequences to taking things into our own hands, rejecting God and trying to go our own way. So what, how does it all end? What what happens next? Well, I think one of the things that I find the most interesting about this passage, I don't know if you thought about it as you read it, but uh, I was quite taken aback by the fact that, do you notice that Israel, they grumbled and rejected God. They wanted to go back to Egypt. They would rather be slaves. They were looking to something else or someone else to fix their problems. And Moses, well, he rejects God and takes things into his own hands. He tries to go his own way, trusting in himself. And so what does God do? he still provides them with water. Isn't that amazing that Israel had rejected him? Moses has gone his own way and God still provides. <laughs> I was thinking about this and I thought, what would I do if I was God in this situation? And I was thinking, uh, what I would do is I would tell Moses, to go and hit the rock and uh, speak to the rock. And when Moses hit it, I'd just sit there and do nothing. Go, good luck, Moses, come on. Try and get some water out of that rock. But that's not what we're told how God replies. In fact, it almost doesn't follow as logically as we'd expect. They'd rejected him. They'd gone their own way. They have abandoned God, yet he provides them with water. This leads us to question, why? Why would God do this? Well, answer is in verse 13. The conclusion to the story tells us that these are the waters of Meribah where the Israelites quarreled with the Lord and he demonstrated his holiness to them. You see, God provided for Israel despite their disobedience. Why? He did it to demonstrate his holiness. God is holy. He is unlike anything or anyone else. He is far above all creation. God revealing his holiness is a part of his plan. The uh, American theologian Louis Berkhof describes God's holiness uh, in this way. He says, God's holiness is absolutely distinct from all of his creatures and is exalted above them in infinite majesty. You see, God provided for Israel with a purpose. And the purpose was to reveal his holiness, to display his glory, to show them that he was God and they are not. You see, at the core of God's provision, the motivation for his actions is his holiness. It's his glory. And that is a great comfort for us. The comfort is that God is in control. He has a plan. He's doing things with a purpose. This was not random. It wasn't some kind of cosmic lucky dip uh, where God was just waiting to see what might happen as if he was far away and out of control. No, God was deeply in control. He has a plan. He has a purpose to reveal his holiness and proclaim his glory. And that is a great comfort for us who are in Christ Jesus who get to participate in that glory. We know that in Jesus, we are included in God's plan. So what does the Bible say about hard times? Does it teach us that if you're a Christian, suddenly all your hard times are gonna go away? Or does it teach us that at least things might be a bit more comfortable? No, that's not what this passage says. Things were really hard for Israel. In fact, things continued to get worse. As the story goes on, this, everyone in this story, this whole generation died before they entered the promised land. Things were really hard. The Bible is full of stories of hardship. The Bible never promises that things are going to be easy because things were not easy for Jesus. But the Bible does tell us that things are going to happen for a purpose and that purpose is for God's glory. Now, I don't know about you, but I really wrestled with this concept because to me, at first, that seems a bit like cold comfort. I mean, God's glory, that's his plan and purpose, that that must come at my expense. It's as if it's me fighting against God's glory, me or him. There's not much comfort, is there, in the fact that uh, God is going to act according to his glory, that he has a plan to reveal his glory, if that comes at my expense. What kind of love is that? I think that's because we don't have... A big enough concept, a big enough understanding of the significance of God's glory. You see, we're told that heaven is going to be like this big party of glory with the Father glorifying the Son and the Son glorifying the Father. And for those that are in Christ, the church is described as the bride of Christ that gets to participate and enjoy this glory as it gets shared around by the Father and the Son and the Spirit and everyone is glorifying each other and we get to be caught up in that glory and enjoy the brilliance and greatness of God. You see, God's glory is a good thing. And for those in Christ, we get to be included in the plan for revealing God's glory. Paul writes about it this way in 2 Corinthians 4.17. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. You see, it's not that our hard times aren't hard. They are really hard. Sometimes they will be so tough. The Bible doesn't downplay that. It knows that they're hard. What it does teach us is that they are nothing. They are insignificant compared to the glory that God has prepared for us. God has a plan. God is present, He is personal, and He acts with a purpose. And in Jesus Christ, we are included in that purpose. We have hope for a future. We have hope for glory that we get to be included in that. It's something that will blow your mind. I want to encourage you to think about it this week. Have you comprehended the greatness of God's glory and what that means for us? God is good. His plan is great and his glory is magnificent. And so, equipped with this knowledge, now that we've seen that God is present, that he's personal and that he's purposeful, we have an opportunity to respond, to question how will we react in the middle of hard times? And I wonder wonder if you'll be like Israel and, and be tempted to to want to turn away. We saw that Israel, they wanted to look to something else, to someone else, anything else to fix their problems. They wanted to escape hard times and abandon God. When times are tough, when things are hard, will you be tempted to look for something else? Or are we tempted to be like Moses who, when things got hard, he decided, you know what, I'm going to roll up my sleeves, pull up my socks and take things into my own hands. It can be tempting to feel like that sometimes too. In the middle of hard times, you think, well, I'm going to find the solution. See that by doing that, Moses wasn't trusting in God, but he chose to trust in himself. And there are consequences to that. So are we going to be like Israel? Are we going to be like Moses? Well, there's a third option. Will we respond like Jesus Christ? Who on the night before that he was going to be crucified on on the days beforehand as he was considering what lay before him, the suffering, the hardship, the pain, the rejection, the death and crucifixion. Jesus prayed these words. Father, Glorify your name. You see, Jesus knew that God has a plan. He knew that plan is for God to be glorified. And Jesus knows that God's glory is a really good thing. And so we can too. Because of Jesus Christ, his life, death and resurrection... We are included as children of God. Remember that? We are his children that get to benefit from his eternal glory. 1 Corinthians reminds us, this world is going to pass away. The things of this life that are seen are temporary. But the things that are unseen, the things of God, they are eternal. There is a great glory being stored up for us. So this week... Uh, Friends, as you experience hard times, I want to challenge you to consider how will you respond? Will you remember that God is present, that he is personal, and that he has a plan? Will you trust in God's plan? Will you live your life for his glory? Because his glory is a very good thing. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word, the Bible. We thank you for the experiences of Israel in the desert, that even so many thousands of years later, we can still learn from them about your provision, your character and your love. Father, I pray that in the midst of hard times, that we will remember that you are present with us by your spirit, dwelling in our hearts by faith that you love us personally as your children. And Father, I pray that we would cling to the hope that you have a plan and it is a good and great thing. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.